this time of the year, need road salt to keep the roads passable. Well, sometimes that has a negative effect on wildlife and the environment. To talk about that, I am delighted to be joined this morning by Tracy Rittenhouse, an assistant professor of wildlife ecology in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Connecticut. Tracy, thank you for joining me this morning. And this this has become a problem. We need the salt to keep the roads open, but the salt has some bad effects related to the environment. What would be some of those examples? And I also have Gary Robbins here from UConn um, to, ha- to have talk about some of the water quality issues um, that can occur with high salinity in the natural environment. Um, but I, I study amphibians um, and tadpoles a lot, um, and I've been concerned about um, salinity levels in, in natural wetlands for, for quite some time. In, in general, though, amphibians are a little bit more tolerant to salinity than people might think, um, so, um, which is a good thing. That's why we've um, been able to apply road salt on our roads for, for many years now um, and still have amphibians in most of our natural wetlands. Um, but we do know that there are negative consequences if salinity levels get, get too high. Are we doing a better job now in keeping the road salts pretty much on the highways and byways without letting them leach off into the woods? Or is that still a problem now like it was 20 years ago? Um, I don't I don't study that. Maybe Gary has a better answer for that. But I, I do know we are still getting some um, elevated um, salinity levels in natural wetlands. Gary, your thoughts on that? I would say in, in, to some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. And, uh, um, you know, the, you, you probably have all noticed that we put these stripes of salt on the roads before storms and all, and these are very effective in in melting uh, um, um, melting uh, snow. The problem is that when because of their effectiveness, you tend to get a lot of salt, you know, very quickly into the into the environment, and uh, um, so that's sort of one negative aspect uh, of this. On the other hand. Uh, where things have greatly improved is uh, how people actually salt and uh, trying to um, be smart about it uh, in terms of minimizing the amount of salt you need and and where you actually put it uh, in order to actually reduce environmental impacts. And just to clarify, what is the salt they're actually using on the roads? Is it similar or maybe the same as the salt you'd put on your steak? Pretty much so. It's and and yeah, again, yes and no. It's mostly uh, sodium chloride, which is uh, your normal table salt, and uh, but mixed with uh, magnesium chloride. And uh, that additional salt is basically uh, exothermic, and that is that when the snow hits it and it starts to uh, melt, it actually gives off heat. Okay, and that heat helps to melt more snow, and that's the that's why they do that. Very effective way of getting the the salt placed uh, in a manner in which uh, you're going to actually get uh, sort of the best bang for your buck. If I recall from my chemistry days, sodium chloride, N-A-C-L. Tracy, I don't think anybody woke up this morning thinking about maybe the road salt that might be used this weekend with the snowstorm on how it might affect tadpoles. Why are you singling out tadpoles in your research? Well, I mean, I love studying wood frogs. They're a super um, common frog here in Connecticut. Um, You can find them in most of the small vernal pools in in your backyard. Um, They're a species that I've studied for for more than a decade now. Um, At this time of year, they're 
under the snow and they're frozen solid. So they're a very interesting species that literally their heart stops beating because they, uh, they, they build up ice inside of them and they freeze solid and they spend the winter frozen and they fall in the spring and they're one of the very first species to arrive at a, at a vernal pool or a wetland to lay their eggs. And what is the effect on frogs starting their life in saltier conditions because of the residual road salt? Well, so one of the, um, I think road salt and high salinity can cause mortality of some of the eggs and some of the tadpoles. Um, but surprisingly, we, we end up with this result that ends up being positive um, because of the high salinity causes zooplankton, like Daphnia and, and things like that, um, to die sooner than tadpoles might, um, we end up with more algal growth in the wetlands. And so some of our tadpole species, um, particularly wood frogs, can do better, um, and we can have larger uh, frogs metamorph out of the pond. And we generally think of that as a good thing. So it's a, that's a rather surprising result, but it's been very consistent now in multiple studies showing that the um, high salinity can result in bigger metamorphs. And Gary, your research interests include the transport of groundwater contamination and groundwater supply sustainability. So taking this beyond the wildlife aspect, what is the effect of runoff road salt from the highways on the water supply? Well, we're, we're seeing the water supply around the state being, uh, you know, getting uh, more and more saline um, with time. Um, if you go back uh, to the the turn of the past century, okay, the early 1900s, uh, and you compare that to today, uh, on average, we're about uh, 10 times more uh, saltier than than it was back then. And uh, But there are places that are 100, almost 1,000 times more saltier. And uh, the real issue is the groundwater. Once that salt gets into the groundwater, uh, given the nature of our, of, our, uh, of our geology here, it takes a very long time for that salt to flush out. And so we'll see uh, more and more wells contaminated as a result. Do they have this problem in Florida, in Arizona, in Southern California, where it doesn't snow and you don't need road salt? Well, if you're talking about groundwater contamination due to salt, no. And uh, other things, maybe, and, uh, but not salt. Uh, it's a problem uh, uh, that, uh, you know, states that use salt uh, face. And, in fact, we've been using more and more and more salt. If you look at the trends over the years, uh, it's, it's ever-increasing. And, Tracy, what are other consequences to heavily salting the road, including disruptions in the food web that can harm some members of the ecosystem while benefiting others? Well, so one of the, the next things that I've been studying and interested in is um, when the frogs leave the wetland and they move into terrestrial environments, um, do these frogs that were grew up in, in salty wetlands um, you know, how do they survive and grow when they move into the forest? And that's where I'm starting to see some of the uh, more negative concerning um, effects. So although a frog, a tadpole that was raised in a wetland with a lot of salt might be bigger, and we generally think big is good, um, what we're finding is when those metamorphs, recent metamorph frogs move into the forest, they have lower survival and slower growth. Um, and so that's very concerning because we need, you know, the juvenile frogs need to uh, grow and survive all the way until they're um, adults and can reproduce. 
And, you know, Tracy, since you're talking here on the radio in Wyndham, Connecticut, I have to throw a question out about the Frogs of Wyndham and the legendary Battle of the Frogs. Do you have any theories on that about why it was the Frogs made all that racket back in 1754? Uh, well, that's what frogs do. I mean, they, um, if you've ever walked out into a wetland um, when frogs are breeding, um, they're very responsive to whether or not there's somebody or person walking through a wetland or not, and, um, and, and they respond to each other when they're chorusing. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the story makes a lot of sense based on the biology of green frogs and bullfrogs. Is it a mating call? Because one of the stories that they had about that was that they were fighting over a dwindling water supply. But I'm wondering if it might have been something more of an amorous nature. Well, so when, when wetlands, um, a lot of wetlands, you know, dry. Water levels go down in the summer when we have a dry spell. And when that happens, um, bullfrogs and green frogs are congregating in less and less water. And so, um, yeah, they do get a little bit feistier. As, as there's just less space um, for the, the animals living in that wetland. All right, so we've talked the effect of road salt on things like tadpoles in the environment. Let me change gears a little bit here. And, Tracy, you were on the Connecticut Bobcat Project, and there have been bobcat sightings around here. Tell me about the Bobcat Project, why we have it, and how invasive and or serious the bobcat issue is around here. Well, um, we started the Bobcat Project um, several years ago because there just hadn't been any research on bobcats in our area in southern New England. And um, we knew that numbers in the, in the region were increasing, um, and that's because of our laws and the, and the protection that they've had since um, the 70s. And so um, to, I think it's rather um, – well, so the results have been that they're more common than I thought. I mean, going into this project, I thought it was going to be hard to find intra-upper-up bobcats. Um, but we have had um, a lot of detections on our cameras, and Deep has been very successful at, at trapping and putting um, GPS collars on bobcats. And so um, we now know that bobcats occur in every town in the state of Connecticut and that they live in pretty urban places. If I see one when I'm walking in my car in the morning, should I stay clear? Sure. You want to give a wild animal its space. Um, they're beautiful to watch. So I would, I would, you know, sit back and, and watch the animal. They walk across your yard. They tend to follow edges. And so I think the most common place for people to see a bobcat is, is kind of combing the edge of a yard. That's a, an edge between, you know, grass and, and the forest. And, and the bobcats will walk along that ledge or they'll walk along a, um, a wall um, and while they're foraging. They move around a lot. And you also enjoy studying any and all wildlife species, including bats. And frankly, I don't see bats around here, but we have them. And tell me about what bats bring to the environment. Are they a good thing for us? Well, I, I think all wildlife species are a good thing, including bats. Um, so I did recently complete a bat project where we were looking at uh, the age of forests and where bats are foraging. So bat numbers are very low in our region because of white-nose syndrome. Um, and we're um, hoping that they're as low as they're going to get and that populations might start increasing following the outbreak of the disease. Um and so we're interested in where they eat, where they forage. And so we were looking at different um, age stands of forests and whether or not, you know, which species forage and what size uh, canopy gaps and things along those lines. 
And Gary, you're studying developing low-cost methods for characterizing bedrock fracture flow conditions. What does that mean? Well, you're probably aware, in the state of Connecticut, for example, we have something on the order of 300,000 wells. And uh, the vast majority of those wells are basically in, in fractured rock. And uh, we know very little about the groundwater conditions in fractured rock. That is where the water gets in, how much water there is, which, where is it going. Uh, once you have a contamination problem, it's very, very difficult to deal with. And so... Um, and it's very, very expensive to actually investigate these kinds of problems. And what we've been doing over a number of years is trying to develop methods that are very cost-effective, um, that give you a lot of really good information but don't cost uh, basically an arm and a leg to do. And uh, uh, and that's it. an example of this is we were, did a very detailed study for the town of Sherman to help them, in fact, with a salt contamination problem uh, using these types of methods. And circling back to the the road salt problem we initially were talking about today, are there efforts being made to try other ways to keep the roads from icing up besides salt, or is that the best way to do it? Tracy, your witness. Um, I I am not super knowledgeable on the different things that are being considered, but I do think you know road salt is and a, a fairly effective um, way of, of clearing the roads um, and de-icing uh, roads. Um, and so I don't, I don't see that going away. I think it's really about, you know, how much we put out there, where we put it, and, and questions like that that are um, being studied the most. And I want to ask you a question about something I read in a story about you in UConn today. Is it pronounced zooplankton, or since we say zoology, is it zooplankton? How do you pronounce it, and what is it? Uh, I say zooplankton. It's um, there's there's small organisms that live in water, so like Daphnia. Um, I think is the organism that people are most familiar with. Um, but it, it's a term that applies to all the small organisms living in, in the water. As I'm reading here, zooplankton eat phyloplankton, and tadpoles eat phyloplankton. So with fewer zooplankton, the tadpoles have more food because those competitors are gone. You get shifts in the communities, but it's not all negative for everything. And one of the things that affects is mosquito larvae. I don't like mosquitoes. So are we saying here that road salt has an effect on the mosquito population? I, I really think it's possible. So in my, I have these outdoor tanks, right, that I raise tadpoles in, and what the what I get more mosquito output from the tanks that have um, road salt added to them. Um, so the the mosquitoes have larvae that that live in the wetlands, and and they're they're pretty tolerant of high salinity conditions. And so when other zooplankton and other larvae of other organisms die, the mosquitoes do better because they don't have as many competitors. And, Gary, does this study on the effect of road salts on plant communities continue, or is your research pretty much over at this point? Oh, no, no. It's, it's, it's very much ongoing. And uh, uh, although we've sort of switched gears, but uh, in terms of what we're actually concentrating on right now, I'm concentrating on arsenic contamination, which I understand you had Mark Higgins on not too long ago talking about that. But, no, it's... Uh, uh, the salt issue is a major issue here in the state uh, because of the uh, quantities of salt that are putting that are being put down and 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 where they put, where the salt is going. It's regional. It's everywhere. And uh, 
And uh, I think this is going to be a continued ongoing uh, uh, issue in trying to, one, reduce, as uh, it, um, Tracy was saying, uh, try to reduce the amounts of salt that we put down and get a lot smarter about how we put that salt down. Interesting topic today. Too much salt, good for winter travel, but with consequences for environmental and human health. That's Dr. Gary Robbins, UConn professor in the Department of Geosciences, and also Tracy Rittenhouse, assistant professor of wildlife ecology in the Department of Natural Resources and the Environment at UConn. Both of you, thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. Thank you. 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.